but I don't I really don't have any regrets I really don't I've I've lived exactly how I've wanted to I've tried my hardest every single time I didn't win the matches that maybe I should have always won or but I really gave it my all so that for me is enough Hi everyone, welcome back to The Body Serve. I'm James. I'm Jonathan. We're back within a week of our last episode mm -hmm. because we're going to be out of the country for a little while and we didn't want to leave you high and dry and we weren't going to have time to do a, a really good WTA season wrap. We just didn't have the time to prepare so we're going to you know, put that on hold for about a week. I don't even know where to start. You made that sound way more exciting than it actually is. <laughs> it's not like we're going on some big gallivanting excursion. It's we're going home for Thanksgiving. Yeah, it's a big deal because we haven't spent a, a holiday with our family in the U.S. since the pandemic began. Mm -hmm. So it is a big deal. It's I mean, we're leaving. It is leaving the country. Technically, it is only about three hours drive around Lake Ontario. Uh -huh. I'm just saying you could have said we're just going home for Thanksgiving. <laughs> <laughs> My voice is a little bit deeper than normal because we're improvising with the time of our recording. I still have to go to work today. Mm -hmm. This is probably one of the earliest we've ever recorded in a day before. We're also back so soon because there are a couple of follow-up things from our previous episode that that are timely that we needed to talk about. The first is that we have officially launched our GoFundMe campaign, which we will be leaving open for quite a while, like we did last time. We are asking for contributions, uh, tips, if you have you know, been a listener of the show, if you've appreciated what we do. It uh, honestly helps us you know, with practical things like traveling and equipment and stuff like that, and is kind of just a way to... I'm sitting beside you and you, you seem a little bit lost for words. I will direct the listeners to the copy that you wrote. Mm -hmm. I'm much, much for better the GoFundMe. It was excellently done. Oh, thank you. It's just it's very awkward to like talk about these things. Yes. So, uh, so th in that copy, you delineated the things that we've accomplished that we're proud of over the last two years since we last held a GoFundMe. Mm -hmm. Some of the episodes that we did, and we've attached a couple incentives like the last time. Uh, tiers, if you will. If you donate 150 or more, then you are eligible for a personalized illustration from Tom Humberstone, who has designed all of the body serve graphics that you may see associated with us. Unfortunately, as of right now, those are all claimed. <laughs> so that was a bit of a, uh, a misleading intro there. Uh, thank you to those who've already donated. But if you do contribute at that level, you will get a very special body serve swag bag. And then if you contribute $100, then you're eligible for a raffle of sorts to get one of those uh, body serve swag bags, but it's not guaranteed. Mm -hmm. And anyone who donates 50 or more will get a postcard. We have new postcard designs. They will be uh, written and signed by both of us. Mm -hmm. As well as a, a newly designed for the first time, body serve bookmark. Both the postcard and the bookmark are I just don't have the bandwidth themed. Mm -hmm. I saw that magnet pop up on our fridge today. It looks good. 
<laughs> so the campaign will be running for a while. It'll be open, no rush. Thank you so much to everyone who's contributed already. Uh, the link will be, you know, in our link tree on Twitter and on Instagram. And you'll also link it to this episode as well in the in the notes. Indeed. We're both here sitting, trying to figure out a transition here, because the Peng Shui story has not gotten any better, despite the very best slash worst efforts by the Chinese government. Mm-hmm. Last week when we recorded, the WTA had just released that statement calling for a full and transparent investigation. Steve Simon had been quoted in the New York Times threatening to pull the WTA's business if something wasn't done. And the the noise just got louder and louder. Mm -hmm. And it, it really over the next day or so. It's been, what, six days since our last episode? The story has blown up mm -hmm. in ways we did not fathom at the time the wta finals was going on and a lot of folks were looking for some kind of demonstration or statement being made in association with that tournament be it at the trophy presentation be it from one of the all-time greats that were on site martina chrissy and billy jean king were all there that didn't happen in direct connection with the tournament but as soon as that tournament was over boy let me tell you the tournament ended wednesday night thursday the wta launched a full-on media offensive on cnn steve simon uh, gave an interview with aaron burnett on her show it was covered in subsequent hours on uh anderson cooper chris cuomo spoke with pam shriver three straight hours of programming on cnn featured the story I gotta say, Steve Simon's interview with Aaron Burnett was impressive, and, you know, he has taken a lot of flack on the show in the past, and I, now that I've seen him speak on this, I think maybe part of the reason is that he has been not very visible before. I haven't really heard him talk that much, ever, and I thought he was impressive, surprisingly forceful. The messaging from the WTA has been shockingly straightforward. As far as the the realistic threat to pull their business from China. Now, whether or not this will affect China in any way or move this case forward remains to be seen. Obviously, tennis has much, much more to lose in this situation. But the fact that they're even going there is important for fans of the game, for a league that represents women. It's important and uh, almost necessary. To your point about not having ever really heard from Steve Simon before, there's kind of a historical grounding of him as kind of a background figure. And the thing that comes to mind is, do you remember that story where he was overheard on a phone conversation in an airport <laughs> and then that story was yes. leaked by somebody who heard it? Yeah, he was uh, supposedly Serena Williams called him mm -hmm. directly, right? Yeah. And I mean, that I feel like that prior to now is a maybe unfair, probably definitely unfair, but that's the type of image and uh, thinking of Steve Simon that a lot of folks had. Because mm -hmm. I feel like everybody knew Stacey Allister. Mm -hmm. She was very visible. And maybe this is uh, maybe this is just a function of him being uh, an older white man 
representing a woman's international sport. Maybe he doesn't feel he needs to be in the spotlight. But it, you know, it allows people to blame you for basically everything. And we have done a lot of blaming. You don't see a lot of what the WTA is up against business-wise and also the things that they're doing behind the scenes to make the tour exist. And on a day-to-day operationals level with respect and relation to the ATP, right? Yes. The inequities there and the power imbalances there alone, let alone on a global international stage where you're dealing with global superpowers, with authoritarian regimes... And now Steve Simon is out here very to the point and forcefully stating his case and what he's willing to accept and suffer from the Chinese government. Mm. Unfortunately, this has become a cause celeb among Republicans, right, who already have mm-hmm. a vested interest in not liking China. Mm-hmm. Nevertheless, the the attention on this story has grown a lot. Uh, honestly, a lot more than I expected. To the point where Jen Psaki spoke about this in the White House press room. So with the Olympics coming up, maybe maybe the only chance the WTA has is to change the temperature, is to embarrass the Chinese government into relenting. And so, I mean, when I say relenting, we don't even know what's going on, right? We don't know... Mm-hmm. If Peng is fine, if she is uh, embargoed, if she is under duress, the Chinese state media has released a few things over the past few days that are almost more chilling than them saying nothing at all. We have still yet to receive video with corroborated timestamps to show that this is Peng moving in real time today. Right. So they released a video of her out to dinner in Beijing. They said it was recently. And it was just to prove that, hey, everything is fine. Okay. Somebody somebody in the video mentioned the date, allegedly. Right. Fine. And even if it is, it doesn't exactly prove everything we need to know, right? These events can be orchestrated. She's been seen at a youth tennis tournament, allegedly. Again, photo ops. And then the part that was... This is the kicker. The kicker, but also the part that's most disheartening for me. Today, the fucking IOC, like Mm -hmm. a scourge on humanity. To this point, it was the WTA against the Chinese government. Okay? We, we, We know that. With the Olympics coming up, one of the few organizations outside of a government that could really materially move the needle on this issue, was the IOC, given the ghastly power and influence that it it holds. Pong being a former Olympian, one of their athletes, somebody who's competed on the IOC's greatest stage. Today, we have a propaganda statement released by the IOC where its president is shown allegedly fielding a 30-minute video call with Pong in that same what looks like a bedroom with scores of stuffed animals. This is a stunt. It's a stunt because there's no video. If you had a video call, let's hear from her. Why can't we hear from her? But now what we know is that the IOC is in lockstep with the Chinese government on this. They are willing to be the wingman to 
have this story go away and have them be able to continue their own business as usual. Yes, because if there's one thing the IOC is going to do, they are going to cover over human rights abuses in countries where they're hosting Olympics. Mm -hmm. And do you know how they like to repeat this bullshit about how sports should be free from politics? What are they doing right now? (laughs) What exactly is that? So, you know, we've had a few kind of orchestrated appearances and they, you know, they very well may be her present day doing these things. But what does it mean? Why hasn't she been able to post herself? She's, you know, in the videos, she said she's shy and private and she doesn't want to post. Something drove her to post this incredibly courageous statement about being assaulted. Now that people are wondering where she are, where she is, the only thing we can get is these orchestrated photo op stunts released by Chinese state media. What is going on? The IOC played along today with this press release, but nowhere in that press release did they acknowledge why we are where we are. Right. What is the precipitating moment or cause, the thing that set off this entire chain of events? Mm-hmm. That that was not addressed at all. And for Steve Simon, he said, it's not enough to know that Peng Shui is alive. That's not what this is all about in its entirety, to have things carry on as usual with their business relations with China, having the WTA operate in China. He wants her accusations of sexual abuse acknowledged, investigated fully. Mm-hmm. And it's clear that that is not happening and likely will not happen by no. the Chinese government. So what does that mean for the WTA in China going forward? That's, you know, thinking way too far ahead at this point because there's still so much about Peng's safety that we don't know. It's not enough to tell us or even show us that she's alive. What is her quality of life? Is she under duress? What is her... Her mental state. This is not a new thing for Chinese dissidents to be put through this propaganda program almost. And it may be that she is technically free and living at home, but disallowed from making public appearances or posting on social media. That is very possible. We literally cannot hear her voice. We're Mm. not allowed to hear her voice. That is a bit on the nose when it comes to when, when we say stifling one's voice, they're literally mm. doing that. Yeah, so unfortunately, the world is preoccupied with wanting to know that she's okay. Meanwhile, there is a, a miscarriage of justice here, right? What's being uh, overlooked at the moment out of prior competing priorities is that she made a very serious allegation about somebody for really serious abuse that may never go answered. Mm-hmm. And this could be unwittingly one of the failings of the social media campaign to raise awareness about the situation. The hashtag, where is Peng Shui? Well, they're telling us, where is Peng Shui? Because once you answer, where is Peng Shui, what's after that? Exactly. And so I say that to say we can almost see how this is going to play out at this point with the IOC falling into line and the hashtag being answerable, it'll come to a point where they'll hope that the steam will run out of this movement and that we'll just all forget about it. 
That's yeah. the playbook. And really, like, the bottom line is that there is so little that we can do, and there's so little that we understand about what's going on within China. So, like, I don't know what the answer, the only answer we have is to keep talking about it. And the only answer that the WTA has is to stand in what it said right. that they will do. Mm-hmm. Because if it continues as it is, and there are no meaningful concessions by the Chinese government, if they do not accede to what Steve Simon wants, how can you continue to play tennis in China mm-hmm. after what, what's happened thus far and what you've said? It's, it's an untenable position. As we mentioned, this story picked up steam right after the conclusion of the WTA finals. Last we recorded, we had gotten to, what was it, the final? But hadn't recorded on what happened in the final. Yeah, we were one match short. Garbinia Muguruza beat Annette Contivate in straight sets. And Garbinia rises to number three. Her ranking is finally kind of reflecting the type of year she's had. And she's such an interesting player because she can go through peaks and valleys, right? Her record at the majors this year didn't necessarily match what she accomplished on the WTA Tour. She reached five finals, winning three of them. She won Dubai, Chicago, and here the WTA Finals. She lost to quality players at majors, but given her level this year, you think she would have done better. Mm-hmm. Her ranking is still a little bit inflated because she's still holding on to Australian Open 2020 finalist points, if I recall. Yes, lost to Kennan. Mm -hmm. And so you can make the argument that players ranked below her, even Karolina Pliskova, slam finalist this year, Krejcikova, definitely, (laughs) Sakari, eight semifinals, Kantavate, the year-end blitz that she went on. There are a lot of players who, who... probably had better years, mm. save for this one big win that Garbinia had. Um, but she's, she's squarely a top eight player on the WTA based on her performance this year. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's a little ungenerous, I think. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> the- Toward the beginning of the year, it looked like she was kind of on her way to being one of the best players of the year. And then that momentum stalled a bit. She, she got injured. Mm. And then it took her a while. She eventually won again in Chicago and then now again at the year in finals. This tournament in a sea of angst and worry and not knowing about the Peng Shui situation, given that this tournament should have been held in China and it was a last minute rejigging to get it to Guadalajara, the joy that emanated from this tournament, not just from Garbine and her joy in winning, but from the enthusiasm of the fans, it was an incredible atmosphere and just a stunning event. It was it was a smash. And they had, what, two months to put it together? First of all, I have no idea how they did that. But at the end of the year, often you get these muddy, sandy, slow-ass courts, and it really impacts the level of the game. And I think the excitement that the actual matches can generate. I remember a few of these years with the WTA finals in Asia and like these matches were just a slog. You get to have tennis outdoors in, well, at nighttime it was pretty cool there. A lot of folks were wearing jackets, but daytime heat, 
being able to drink at a tennis match in <laughs> November, a fast hard court. It, it made for exciting tennis. Yes, and these women were hitting in the final, were they not? You, t- you tell no lies. <laughs> uh, Garbinia was, I mean, she managed to get a hold of the unforced errors. The swinging volley, not working for her. No, but it didn't... the backhand swinging volley specifically. Yeah, the net approaches were not cute, but she did not let it drag her down. Mm-hmm. There was one moment in that final where the camera work did such a great job along with the commentator of explaining how that shot can go wrong they were able to capture her contact point and just how far behind where it needed to be Mm. and that's why she spread it so far long Mm -hmm. it would be nice to see some more traditional volleys from garbinia it's not her thing really but i don't think she's incapable i mean who do we blame for that (laughs) <laughs> Who are the, the historical um, swinging volleyers? Venus, Serena, and Maria? Monica. She did too. Oh, God. oh yeah. the <laughs> Yes, the Alpha and Omega swinging volleyer. <laughs> Her opponent in this final, Annette Contivate. Yeah, Contivate's past few months, uh, you already know, is crazy. 29 and 5 since Cleveland. Uh, Cleveland was that tournament right before the U.S. Open that they held in the flats in downtown Cleveland. Just you know, popped up out of nowhere. And Contivate really wasn't wasn't doing much, right, for a while. And then she won this tournament and went on an absolute tear. In an interview with the WTA, she said the key was not overthinking it and having self-belief. It sounds very simple, right? When mm-hmm. athletes are successful, the, the keys are pretty bare bones. It's, <laughs> sports psychology is always about, like, removing things rather than adding them. Somebody who's getting a lot of credit, and it's always impossible to say just how much they deserve, especially when it's a coach, and especially when it's a man coaching a woman, <laughs> uh, is Dmitry Tursunov, who, if you recall, is formerly the coach of Arena Sabalenka. Yeah, he's developing a very good reputation as a coach on the WTA Tour, and by all accounts, he's very well-liked. The commentators say he's such a nice guy. He seems to have genial relationships with his players. This partnership is clearly working. To date. They always work until they don't. Well, right. I'm holding out hope (laughs) that the partnership of Garbinia Muguruza and Conchita Martinez extends into eternity. (laughs) Because do you recall, do you remember what that was like? We were in press conferences with Muguruza and Sam Sumik. that was not good. And you do see this r- repeated with Sumik's other relationships and with with other coaching partnerships on the tour, unfortunately. We mentioned previously that the women's greats were all there. I should say the retired greats. Or the greats that we... The, that triumvirate that we yes, associate not, I mean, with not, commentary. Not and, all of the greats. Yes, you know. Uh, Billie Jean King, after whom the, the trophy is named... Martina Navratilova and Christine Ebert mm-hmm. were at this tournament. They were all on the court during the trophy presentation. They're all having very intense conversations with each player. Chrissy and Annette especially seemed to connect. They hugged and uh, you wonder what sort of wisdom they're imparting on these players. In fact, I can tell you a little bit, a snippet about what Chrissy was telling Annette. Uh, the camera 
the, the trophy presentation went on for quite a while, and then eventually the camera was just panning around, it landed on Chrissy and Annette, and you could see or read her lips where Chrissy says to her, you know that now, almost in that kind of tone. You could mm-hmm. hear the tone almost. And then eventually you see another, you see Annette, we think, say, can I have a hug? And then Chrissy says, oh, yeah, and then they hug, <laughs> you know? But- so what do you think she knows now? Bring Garby to Net all the time? <laughs> I just love that it possibly could have been something super tactical that Chrissy noticed that she's like, well, next time you'll get her, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Or maybe something really big picture, seeing the forest for the trees. Yeah, and she was probably like, well, I never had that problem, but you know that now. But what other sports <laughs> can you get that kind of immediate feedback from one of the all-time greats? Yeah, yeah. Moments after you finish a final, the biggest final of your career. Yeah, you mentioned to me this week that it's it's kind of remarkable that the women's tour always can depend on its legends to show up. You see, uh, even, you see Virginia Wade all the time, Conchita is coaching... And then, of course, the triumvirate, the trinity of Billy, Martina, and Chrissy are always there at presentations and ceremonies to to support the current state of the tour. Mm-hmm. They're all still involved in the game, most of them commentating. Billie Jean King is just hovering above all manner of things as <laughs> overlord, <laughs> right, you know, right. as revered icon in many spheres. But it helps that... Chrissy's a commentator. She's at a lot of these tournaments. Martina's commentating, you know. Mm-hmm. But what? why is this, right? And why is it not like this in the ATP, for example? Mm-hmm. Because the tour is founded out of necessity. In order for women to continue to play tennis competitively in 1970 and be taken seriously and be paid even a percentage of what they were actually worth, they had to fight. And these women, Martina and Chrissy, are direct descendants of the leader of that fight. Mm -hmm. Like there was a through line, a continuity, a passing of the baton through generations. We talked about this on our one of our episodes. I don't know if it was a Steffi episode where it felt like maybe... Steffi was like, I, I don't really feel like taking that baton right now. Mm-hmm. Like, yes, that some older players have criticized both her and Monica for for not getting into the sort of the politics and the promotional aspect of the tour mm-hmm. and connecting with its history. Yeah, so you get the impression that these women do not feel it a burden to do this kind of stuff. They feel it a responsibility, one that they must do. Mm-hmm. You know, because at one time it was a necessity. It was part of the job. And now it's sort of become part of the tour's culture, mm-hmm. part of its DNA. The Battle of the Sexes did a good job illustrating this for people that this was as grassroots as it gets. Right. In the 70s, you had professional women's tennis players giving out tickets and parking lots like they were drumming up business organically. It's not just those three, though. Pam Schreiber was out here on CNN, mm-hmm. immediately answering the call to go bring the Peng Shui situation into more focus. Yeah. So I think, uh, you know, part of the reason that they have such a big presence is that, and also women's tennis has an incredible story, right? It has a very rousing, engaging history. And 
a big reason for that is that Billie Jean King is the best storyteller this sport has ever had. She just has a personality where I don't. she understands her history. She understands how to present it in the best possible way. Like she is... Depending on the audience. Too, exactly. Right? Like she is PR and historian all in one. Mm-hmm. It's just a personality that you don't see every day. And mm-hmm. I think the difference here is that the ATP, while the ATP has very fascinating stories about strikes and lockouts and and just the various incarnations of their tour, they don't have that one storyteller to, to bring it all together. They don't have this one big bang moment that then carried on. You know, like everything kind of... Right, like it was born here on this mm-hmm. day. Like the the $1 contracts with the original mm-hmm. nine. Like the ATP doesn't have something like that. I mean, how brilliant was that? That photo up with the $1 contract? Mm-hmm. Like enduring. And so I think where I was coming from in thinking about this segment, at the start of us doing this show in like 2015, 2016-ish, it felt like the story of the WTA had not been carried on mm-hmm. into present day. It had been kind of lost. It wasn't amplified as it should be as this incredible origin story for the biggest professional sporting league for women in the world, mm-hmm. right? And we've seen, like you said, perhaps it has to do with the, the movie that was made, but the Fed Cup has been rebranded as the BJK Cup. The trophy at the WTA Finals is now the BJK trophy. The the 50th anniversary of the original nine, the WTA itself doing a ton of work mm-hmm. with the current players yes. trying to tell the story. And if that has been a concerted effort, then kudos, because I feel like it's taking hold. The former greats have been involved hook, line, and sinker to make it happen as well. I, I feel like it we're in a completely different place with the global branding of the WTA than we were in, say, 2015. Yeah, yeah. The uh, the myth-making. And when I say myth-making, I don't mean that it's false, but it's that Billie Jean and her contemporaries were able to create a mythology around women's tennis that I think very few sports have. And because you have this tour that is the biggest women's professional tour in the world, where its players make the most money of any professional women athletes in the world because of all that that we just talked about there's no turning back with this Peng Shui situation mm-hmm. yeah. just, there just cannot be i think there's a, a good connection there that the the wta's history itself uh kind of makes it necessary for them to have a strong reaction to this and also makes it part of their corporate culture perhaps and uh, that of course can fail Right, an organization can have a pretty shitty response depending on who its leadership is. But luckily, I think the people in charge recognize that hey, we're a women's sport, a pretty important one, and if we don't do this right, it's going to look really bad. You even, lose your credibility. Right. Even if you look at it cynically like we've just got to handle this for our own kind of corporate PR and we've got to come out of it looking good, it's true. It's a global sport. If you don't handle this right, you're going to lose fans. You're going to lose credibility. And there's a, a pretty serious human component at play here. I will say this too. A lot of times when organizations come out with responses, it feels like PR. This doesn't right. feel like PR from the WTA. 
And I think that speaks to how deeply embedded that history and culture and myth-making is Mm. that you were talking about. Other entities have come up with statements. It seemed like everybody had a statement. But I do want to point out the ITF statement, which was not more than maybe four sentences and said absolutely nothing and took such a long time for them to make. Mm -hmm. When, if you recall, in the spring, it took them all of maybe 20 minutes for them to get all four slams on board with them to issue the scathing... Oh, yeah, it was like six paragraphs. ...scathing indictment of Naomi Osaka. And how dare any player do that, and this is a warning for any further player to do this. Mm -hmm. It took them no time to do that. But this toothless statement, when one of its own is imperiled in this way, it's it's one of the most damning things I've seen to come out in the last week. Uh, so the ATP finals happened. I heard that guy won. He beat Novak Djokovic in the semis, played Medvedev in the final, who he'd been like 0-5 against over the past two years, and won in straight sets. Fine. My feeling about this whole tournament is... If a tree falls in the forest and nobody's there to hear it, you know how that goes. Mm. It just feels like there was a real lack of excitement around this ATP finals. And this could be our echo chamber. Like this could be confirmation bias, but it just felt like such an afterthought this year. Who was excited about it? Two players had to withdraw during the tournament. You know, Novak was the headliner here. Novak didn't win. And I don't know. It just feels like we've said this before. The men's tour, when the big four are gone, they got some work to do. Because Zverev, Medvedev finals over the next decade, it's not going to do it. And because this person has such unending gall and audacity, after the match, when he's giving his speech, he turns to Medvedev's wife, addresses her and says, Dasha, you've been with Daniil for a very long time. We know each other all for 10 plus years. So it's great to see how far we kind of came together playing the biggest matches in the world. It's great to have you on court with me. Dasha Medvedeva is one of Olya Sharapova's close friends. Or was at one point. Yeah, I think it's pretty well known in the tennis community that the Medvedevs don't really fuck with Alexander like that anymore. That they have kept their distance. I don't know them all like that, but that's the impression that we get from seeing the folks who pay attention to their social media. Right. So for him to mention Daniel's wife in his speech is just, uh, it's a whole other level. I mean, I saw someone the other day say that he's really good at compartmentalizing. And if we were dealing with a normal person, that would be the correct reading. But I just don't... It doesn't even appear he's needed to compartmentalize all that much. The vitriol he's getting, the criticism, the earned criticism he's gotten, and this negative attention seems only to have improved his tennis and made him even more defiant. So I don't know if that's compartmentalizing because he doesn't really appear to be all that affected. Some of the things he said are deranged. I just can't fathom how somebody in his position does something like that. Like, that is wild to me. Yeah, or continues to move through the world as he does. Mm. Uh, So, a great, great year. Won every final he reached this year. Um, He has won this tournament before, so, like, literally nobody cares. 
every year we talk about shortening the season and every year it doesn't happen. <laughs> and so we have these two withdrawals with Berrettini and Tsitsipas. It is no surprise that if you drive a car, say 100,000 miles in a year, it's going to need a lot of tune-ups. Is that a terrible <laughs> analogy? I, I guess. It's like depreciation. It's going it's to break down. You know, it's yeah. just, and we're talking about human bodies here. It's just, I mean, we take for granted that they're superhuman, that they have these incredible bodies that can withstand all this physical pressure and tension. But it, it does not logically make sense for these players to show up at the year-end tournament and play their best tennis. Mm. Uh, tennis players are carrying injuries constantly. Mm-hmm. They just happen to experience pretty bad injuries. You know, that if they continue playing, it risks making worse or it's too painful to continue. But the normal state for a tennis player is probably playing with pain, at least a little bit. The latest from Nick Kyrgios is that the French Open should be banished. Oh, the, it's it's the anti-clay agenda. I feel that we've heard that before. It's the anti-clay agenda continuing. And I mentioned that because he came after Kaspar Ruud earlier in the year. And there was this narrative oh, yes. building around Ruud that he was a clay court specialist. Dare I say even a clay court vulture. And that's why his <laughs> ranking was so high. He has shown himself more than being capable on hard courts at this point. Yes. He won San Diego... And he beat Rublev and Nori here. People felt because he won those titles during that Olympic swing that that was illegitimate. That his ranking was inflated. But I think he he did well to back up his ranking here, making the semifinals. Medvedev once again, <laughs> once again, Medvedev plays the role of villain slash clown. He just knows when to put that nose on when to to play the role Mm -hmm. and he's most effective i think when he's taking the piss out of someone out of his opponent because somehow he comes out looking better for it Mm -hmm. i'm not not more than what two weeks after yannick sinner gave that press conference about francis tiafo and his antics putting on too much of a show doing too much (laughs) did sinner in his match against Medvedev, try to gin up support from the crowd in his own way. And the camera pans to the bo- to both players crossing. And as Sinner's arms are in the air, there's Medvedev walking by. Yawning. Yawning and putting <laughs> his hand to his mouth. <laughs> like a poor Yannick because he is going to be catching shit for any minor demonstration on court because of what he said about Francis. <laughs> We finally have confirmation from the Australian Open as to what will be required vis-a-vis vaccines for players to enter the country and play at the first slam of 2022. Yes, Craig Tiley revealed on Australian television that full vaccination is mandatory to play the Australian Open And several journalists caught it and then were able to confirm it afterward. Full capacity crowds. So I wonder if this went some ways toward the decision. Tylee is going to want full capacity. He's going to want ticket sales to make up for losses in the previous year. Maybe that was the compromise. You know, you can have full capacity if you require vaccines. 
We've seen this all over the world in various settings, whereby at some professional sporting events, crowds are required to be all vaccinated, but the players aren't. We've seen it in restaurant industries here in mm-hmm. Canada, whereby yeah. patrons are required to be vaccinated to enter a restaurant, but staff is not. <laughs> yeah, and that's really, I think, just because it's a legal quagmire for small businesses mm-hmm. to require. But what I'm saying is, I get the impression that in Australia, the Australians would not stand for this. Mm-hmm. That's the impression that I'm getting, that they're outrage over that double standard with the players in this instance after everything they've been through because a lot of places there isn't a collective we've been through this it seems that there is a pretty large collective we've been through this in australia right right and i think that probably played a part in it as well Tylee said that player vaccination has jumped from 50 percent earlier to 80 percent And he doesn't expect much fallout. Of course, the the question remains that Novak is stringing us along here, right? He does not want to talk about it. It's a we'll see. I guess we'll see. Mm -hmm. It feels very stunty to me. He was presented with this new update and he said, well, we'll see. It's... We we absolutely will see. If you're there, you're vaccinated. If you're not... Then you're not. And you know what? Like, he is actually being forced to disclose. Because Mm -hmm. if he doesn't go, then we know. And vice versa. It feels a little bit dramatic to me. This idea that folks are not entitled to know whether people who they're going to be in contact with is vaccinated or not is just absurd to me. Well, yeah. I mean, we don't have to know about Novak. But he is going to have to disclose in order to do his job, at least in Australia this year. So what what is the big secret, dude? Like, why is it always, uh, we'll see. I don't know if I'm going to play. We'll see. So we can just sit here and speculate and, like, chatter for the next few months? No. I'm, I'm so bored with this. If he's there, he's there. We received some really not very good news about Roger Federer's health. Not us personally, but you all, plural. And the prospects for him returning to top flight tennis, that likelihood seems less of a certainty now. Mm-hmm. Not impossible, but sl- slim. He had surgery to repair meniscus and cartilage in his knee. And the first bit of news that came out was that he definitely won't be playing in Australia. And then it was like, well, when could we see Federer? And then when I saw that it would be kind of a a best-case scenario miracle for him to play Wimbledon, I was like, whoa, this is this is super serious. Yeah, that was shocking. He told Le Maton that uh, he needs to be very patient with the knee. He won't even be able to get on a tennis court until March or April. So Wimbledon is not probably going to be in the cards this year. And the quotes were... I mean, I guess they were hopeful, but they were probably a lot less optimistic than his fans had hoped for. It seems that one of the driving forces is to give his fans a better last impression than what was given at Wimbledon this past year. Mm -hmm. He said, quote, it would have been easy for me to say, let's stop here. But they, the fans, deserve better than what they've seen from me throughout the past grass season. 
Mm-hmm. And, and earlier he said, I know it will be incredibly difficult, but I do believe in that sort of miracle. So he understands that returning to elite tennis is going to be extremely difficult. So we don't know what Roger will look like when he comes back, if he's able to come back. Uh, he, I mean, he's had a very long career and he is very, very old in tennis terms. But I do hope that he's able to accomplish what he wants to. That's the only goal. The mm. only goal for me, for any person, any athlete, is to retire on their own terms. Doesn't mean you win the U.S. Open like Pete Sampras and then you ride off into the sunset only to have three other caballeros come and like gallop past you <laughs> in the next <laughs> few years. Or if you want to just play for as long as you physically can play and enjoy it, Good for you too. You know, that, that's always been my uh, point of view. And it's specifically in relation to folks telling people that they need to retire. They don't need to do anything for your benefit. I think that's a wrap of this episode. We've got two more episodes coming before we wrap our seventh season. Next will be the WTA year in review, followed by the ATP year in review. Unless something crazy happens in tennis. I don't even want to speculate about what... <laughs> What could happen? Because we've seen so many things over the years happen that require us to put down. (laughs) Emergency episode. Yeah. Once again, we've launched our second ever GoFundMe. Check out the prose, the text, the literature that James wrote about the campaign. I'm rolling my eyes right now. (laughs) It's not what it's about. There's a picture of Vince in there too, Mm -hmm. right? So we'll get back to you next week with uh, starting to wrap the seasons of both tours. My name is Jonathan. You can find me on Twitter at tennis underscore John. And I'm James. I'm at Elliot JMR on Twitter. Two L's, two T's. Anything related to the podcast that you need to find, be it the GoFundMe or social media accounts, go to linktree.com slash thebodyserve. All the links will be there. We will link to the GoFundMe in this episode as well. Till next time. Thank you very much.